You ready to rock and roll? Yeah, 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 yeah. You know how to turn are these things on? Um, Good afternoon. Um, let's get started. I'd like to introduce to you Jackie Stevens, who's a uh, professor of political science at Northwestern University. She has an extraordinarily diverse and fascinating collection of readings spanning feminist theory, identity, state building, humanitarian law, the politics of gender and sexuality, and most recently, American foreign policy. Uh, not only has Jackie published in the Journal of Political Philosophy, Political Theory, Comparative Studies in Social History, Theory and Event, Social Text, Gender and Politics, Third Word Quarterly, and upcoming the University of Virginia's Journal of Social Policy and Law, but also the Village Voice, and now she's a uh, commentator in The Nation, the columnist of The Nation, where she's focusing on uh, the legal conduct of the U.S. government, in particular ICE, or I guess it's uh, I'm a criminal enterprise, is that what ICE stands for? <laughs> With regard to mistreatment of uh, U.S. citizens. Uh, her most recent book is uh, States Without Nations, Citizenship for Mortals, uh, published by Columbia University Press a couple years ago. And today she'll talk about enhancing security through states without nations, which is a spin-off from the book project. So welcome, Jackie. So thank you so much, Ted, for organizing this and for to the Mershon Center and to you all for taking your time to uh, join uh, this join us for this talk. Uh, I just have one correction. I'm, I'm not a columnist for the nation. I've written several articles in the last couple of years on um, immigration and customs enforcement and um, focused on the unlawful actions of that agency as well as the Executive Office of Immigration Review, which runs the immigration courts. Um, and I also want to update the announcement about the book, which is that there's actually a paperback that just came out this month. Um, so if you want to get a cheaper version, um, you could do that. So the title of the talk today is Enhancing Security Through States Without Nations, although I think that the first part was amended <laughs> with the enhancing security, and we'll talk about that in a second. Um, this project comes out of my first book, which is called Reproducing the State, and um, it's not simple self-aggrandizement um, and self-promotion to put the image here, but I want to point out some of the features of the state that are associated with this image from Rene Magritte that's called the white race. And um, that book argues that rules for membership in political societies are based on birth. And I look at the very formal rules of membership based on birth, either birth in a territory or birth to particular parents um, for determining membership either in you know, ancient city-states or in pre-literate tribes. Um, and I look at the implications of these rules, or in the modern state, and I look at the implications of these very formal rules for affiliations of nation ethnicity, and race, as well as family. Um, and I focus on the ways that the experience of these groups as natural is constituted because of the experience of joining them through birth, even though the rules constituting the joining through birth are you know, constructed by a political society. Um, families are not you know, these pre-given entities as maybe you know, Hobbes and Locke and Rousseau and the social contract model would imagine where you have these families out there and then they aggregate and they get bigger and then you get political society. Um, and, but rather, as Durkheim points out, in elementary forms of religious life, um, 
Families are constituted by the rules of the political society. You don't know what counts as a family until the rules are given. So for instance, in the United States, we have rules for what counts as a family that are very different from the rules, let's say, in Iran. If you tried to immigrate from Iran and bring, and you're a man and you try to bring your four wives over, you won't have those relationships recognized. So it's not that you, you couldn't possibly imagine having the family start out first um, without knowing what counts as the family. Um, legal ancestry is th um, the basis of nationality and therefore um, I suggest also the basis of ethnicity and race. Um, nationality and political society are two sides of the same coin. The political society are the formal rules of membership and the nationality is the experience of those rules as natural. Um, and n ethnicity is the imprint of nationality in a in a different territory other than that of the originary nation. So when we think about ethnicity, we're often used to talking about it as different cultures and, and so forth. Um, but there is, but you know, ethnicity is always in relationship to a past, present, or aspirational nation. Um, and uh, so we can have you know, different cultural practices that might be associated with like yuppies or hell's angels and so forth, but we don't think of them as ethnic groups. Um, and then finally, one of the points I make is that um, because of these different um, membership rules, people have the experience of being naturally different from those who are born in other places. And th that um, there's something that's distinctive about um, a group that's based on intergenerational ties in contrast with other kinds of groups. And the final part of the book contrasts these kinds of intergenerational ties, groups that we experience as belonging to because of birth, from religion, which is another kind of group that is, you know, in, in contrast with, say, an economic organization or other kinds of membership groups. Um, and whereas the nation is oriented to experiences of birth and origins, um, religion is oriented toward ideas about death and that we experience our um, distinctions and commitments to different religious groups in relationship to our ideas about death. And that, so I'm just obviously skating over the surface of this. It's a heuristic project. And then out of that, um, sorry, let me just go through why I have this image here. Um, let's see. I'm trying to find a little, is there, is there a pointer on this? Oops. That was the pointer that made it go off. <laughs> hold on, hold on, I've got one. Okay. There we go. Okay, so um, I thought this was, so again, this is called The White Race and it's by Magritte and he's got several images of this, um, you know, with bronze sculptures and other kinds of paintings and it's his effort, I interpret this as his effort to suggest that the white race is constructed in part through slave labor um, and that it's just like, it's a state project that um, just like the Egyptian pyramid. And then it also, there's a suggestion of you know, a, a, a pregnancy here, um, that it, and that so to suggest that this state project is reproducing itself. So when I saw this at an art institute um, exhibit in 1993 in Chicago, I thought, wow, this is great. <laughs> um, okay, so States Without Nations um, takes off from the heuristics of reproducing the state and asks what are the political implications of these different kinds of um, intergenerational groups. Um, how are they associated, it turns out, with war and other kinds of persistent forms of economic inequality? Um, why do we persist with these kinds of harmful paradigms? 
And then out of those questions, I um, explored four thought experiments for alternatives. And so just to briefly you know, sketch some of the harms of associated with nation states, um, there's been three, 203 million people who've been killed in war or genocide from 1900 to 1987. 170 million of these deaths were non-combatants. From 1994 to 2003, 13 million people died in war, according to the International Red Cross and also research from Lancet. Um, and research in Lancet, the, you know, public health researchers are now treating civil war as a public health problem, which resonates from earlier work where public health researchers identified crime as a public health problem. And so like intercity crime, um, inner city crime was something that then drew the resources of the public health community the way that today, um, um, civil war and ethnic violence are drawing the attention of this community. Um, Hitler, <laughs> in 1943, <laughs> after the, um, a, a general surrenders on the Eastern Front, says, how easy he has made it for himself. The man should shoot himself as generals used to fall upon their swords when they saw their cause was lost. That's to be taken for granted. What does life mean? Life is the nation. The individual must die. What remains alive beyond the individual is the nation. So many people have to die, and then one man like that comes along and at the last minute defiles the heroism of so many others. He could free himself from all misery and enter into eternity, into national immortality, and he prefers to go to Moscow with like, you know, contempt. And one of the things that is you know, noteworthy about this is the um, way that the nation does elicit these kinds of commitments to kill and to risk death um, on a scale that is really unparalleled by other kinds of groups. Um, I mean, again, these intergenerational groups, not just the nation, but those formed in relation to the nation as well as um, race and religion, are, are among a handful of the groups on whose behalf people are willing to kill and die on a massive scale. So you know, if we think about the um, social science number of 1,000 deaths as an indicative of civil wars. Um, there's, there's no other groups that really elicit those kinds of massive, mass um, systemic events of violence. Um, Carl Schmitt, in his essay, The Concept of the Political, when he's trying to explain the, you know, uh, uh, the, the commitments that um, people have to um, the cause of the nation in contrast with other uh, motives, points out, quote, under no circumstances can anyone demand that any member of an economically determined society sacrifice his life in the interest of rational operations. To, 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 so he's saying, like, if you're saying, okay, you work for GE, we're not doing so well, go kill the you know, environmentalists or something, right? Like the members of GE might care a lot about th their stock prices <laughs> and, and experience those in a zero-sum relationship to the actions of environmental groups, but they're not going to you know, go act on this imperative according to Carl Schmitt. Quote, um, to justify such a demand on the basis of economic expediency would contradict the individualistic principles of a liberal economic order. To demand seriously of human beings that they kill others and be prepared to die themselves so that trade and industry may flourish for the survivors or that the purchasing power of grandchildren may grow is sinister and crazy, end quote. Um, and he dedicates this essay to a friend of his who died in World War I, um, actually just after World War I had ended. So his friend was on the front 
and didn't realize that the war had ended and died. And so this is, you know, this, this um, homage to somebody who has, you know, shown his commitment to this cause. And it's totally irrational um, on, on, um, from an economic point of view to imagine that he would have done so in the name of that kind of cause. But, you know, Schmidt would say that it is rational to imagine that one would risk one's life and die in this kind of cause on behalf of what he calls friends um, or politics and what I'm calling the nation or ethnicity or other kinds of intergenerational groups or religion. So for Schmidt, it's okay to kind of cordon off those kinds of commitments and say, go for it. But you have to recognize that that's something distinct from the expectations of commitments in other realms. Um, now, as we know, Thomas Hobbes had a response to Carl Schmitt's you know, sectoring off even of these commitments to die on behalf of a religious or a national cause and thought that that was crazy. Um, Hobbes says, quote, because there is no natural knowledge of man's estate after death, much less of the reward that is to be given to breach of faith, but only a belief <laughs> grounded upon other men saying that they know it supernaturally or that they know those that knew them that knew others that knew it sat supernaturally, Breach of faith with the sovereign cannot be called a precept of reason or nature. And, and you know, Hobbes is in this kind of tricky position because on the one hand, we all know his maxim that says, um, you know, life in the state of nature is solitary, nasty, brutish, and short, and this axiomatic assumption that people will leave the state of nature in order to avoid a violent death on the one hand. But on the other hand, he, he sees all around him instances in which that's not the case, right? And so it's, it's almost like a strategic um, rationality that he's arguing for rather than simply representing that there is this you know, rational self-interest that will motivate people to avoid a fear of the violent death. He's looking around him and seeing people who are fighting in civil wars on behalf of their religious causes and, saying, and, and who believe that they're doing so because um, better to you know, die and have um, you know, some kind of eternal salvation in heaven than to be a heathen or to be um, living in some kind of religious servitude um, in, you know, but still be alive. And so you know, he's trying to come to terms with that, but he can't quite do it because people are, are actually behaving in this ways that are inconsistent with his, um, max, with his, with his axiom. Um, so one question to ask at this point is whether the whole idea of national security per se is an oxymoron. Um, insofar as a nation is one of the few groups on whose behalf members will kill and die, and that there's a, something that's rationalized from that that is inconsistent with other kinds of economic orders, um, it seems that the premise of the nation is at odds with the concept of security, which is a guarantee of safety, surety, um, a guarantor. Freud, um, in the aftermath of World War I, um, in, in other essays, even before this, starts to reflect on how it is the case that these apparently very sophisticated, well-developed civilizations are having their young men die in the millions in bloody trenches. And this, to him, just seems completely um, you know, bizarre. And he says, um, when we start considering this possibility, we come upon a contention which is so astonishing that we must dwell upon it. This contention holds that what we call our civilization is largely responsible for our misery and that we should be much happier if we gave it up and returned to primitive conditions. I call this contention astonishing because in whatever way we may define the concept of civilization, 
It is a certain fact that all the things with which we seek to protect ourselves against the threats that emanate from the sources of suffering are part of that very civilization. And what he's talking about are the family, the nation, and religion. And he points out that these are established because people are afraid of dying. And that it's out of this fear of dying that people establish these institutions that allow them to partake of feelings of immortality. So that even after their individual lives are over, to the extent that the nation or religion, the family persist, and they're organically tied to these institutions, they too somehow will be able to comfort, they still comfort themselves that they still will be able to um, persist. We cannot see why the regulations made by ourselves should not be a protection and benefit for every one of us. And yet when we consider how unsuccessful we have been in precisely this prevention of suffering, a suspicion dawns on us that here too, a piece of unconquerable nature may lie behind this this time a piece of our own psychical constitution. So Freud's account of why this is the case is that he's actually driven to come up with the theory of the death drive. Well, it can't possibly be the case that people who are committed to life would develop these institutions that seem to inevitably lead to this mass systemic violence. And so you know, from the point of view of peace studies, he, he's not a very optimistic guy. Um, but maybe he's not so right about this. And, um, what I want to do is explore some alternatives, but I also want to, before getting to that, sh show some other um, forms of what we might call economic violence that are associated with these intergenerational communities and that, um, that are conducive to empathy only along, um, except for in, you know, in non-emergency situations, um, only along lines of these national, ethnic, racial, or religious groups. Um, and there's, obviously there's exceptions, but generally um, these are not the kinds of facts that have led to radical redistribution of wealth. So one billion people do not have safe drinking water, 2.4 billion do not have basic sanitation, um, two billion people do not have electricity, um, 1.5 billion um, fall below the international poverty line, meaning that they do not have the annual income of $145 um, needed in the poorest countries to have the minimum, quote, nutritionally adequate diet plus non-essential non-food requirements. Starvation and preventable disease are responsible for one-third of all deaths each year. And there's been an update on this that I haven't incorporated into this, but the numbers are pretty persistent. Um, in 1999, the assets of the top three billionaires was more than the combined GNP of all least developed countries and their 600 million people. Okay, so you can think, well, how does that have to do with what I'm talking about, right? Like, this is just like capitalism. There's a few really rich people, and then that, the, the consequence of that is that they have a lot more than all the poor people. Um, and yet, what I want to suggest is that in addition to the um, cleavages associated with the nation, the cleavages of kinship rules also have um, very strong economic consequences. And we're not used to thinking about that because we're used to thinking in some ways because of Marx and also because of classical economics that after the end of feudalism, with the rise of capitalism and labor markets and so forth, the results of your um, labor are, the, are what lead to um, any kinds of economic disparities. Um, and what I want to do here is just you know, first briefly look at the um, concentration of wealth. And this is just the United States. Um, and so you can see here that the, um, let's see, right. The bottom, sorry, the top 1% have 32.7% of the wealth. 
And that means that the bottom 50% have 2.8% of the wealth. Um, what's interesting here is a, a contrast between the disparities in wealth and income. Um, and so you can see here, first of all, that there's a persistence in the um, concentration of wealth from 1983 to um, 2007. Um, and, but the other thing that's kind of interesting is that the disparities in wealth, and this is also marked by the Gini coefficients, are much less um, large than, sorry, the disparities <coughs> of income are much less large than the disparities in wealth. Um, and so you can see here that you know, the top 1% have 12.8% of the income and that it's more, um, it, it's not great, but it's more equitably distributed. Um, and also, you know, this is a, a really important number too. The bottom 40% of um, the country has you know, negative, either no or negative net worth. Okay, so this is like really striking um, contrast. And, and again, this is a, a really strong disparity between the distribution of income for the bottom 40%. Okay, um, and so with. Economists researching um, the distribution of wealth have actually started paying a lot of attention in the last few decades, um, including Lawrence Summers, um, when, when he was at Harvard before, sorry, when he was at MIT, um, and to looking at intergenerational transfers. And what they found is that um, at the low end, between 50 and at Lawrence Summers' end, 83% of disparities in wealth can be explained by intergenerational transfers and not lifetime accumulation of wealth through income. And that's consistent with this, you know, with this data here. Um, the, 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 the data suggests that most of this is um, intergenerational transfers while parents are alive, but a third of the um, disparity is accounted for by intergenerational transfers of wills, of, of, in, of, of estates. And so, what I'm you know, suggesting in the proposals that I'm going through here um, are to eliminate those laws that are inconsistent with the condition of mortality and therefore come up with um, you know, political environments that are less harmful, less violent, and less um, unequitable. And so the four thought experiments that States Without Nation pursues is considering what the world would look like if we ended, um, if we eliminated four laws. And the four laws are birthright citizenship, inheritance, marriage, and private ownership of land. And the, you know, the thinking behind each of these is that they're based on assumptions that, well, first of all, that they're harmful. And secondly, that they're based on irrational fears about death, that there are these institutions that are established to try to immunize people from you know, fears of mortality, um, but then they end up actually causing a lot of harms. Um, this is a project that I consider to be quintessentially liberal. <laughs> and um, I, I, I'm not you know, down with all of the things that are in the Wall Street Journal and everything about um, neoliberalism. Um, but I think it's really interesting to think about the difference between the analysis of the causes of inequality that are based on capitalism and the analysis that are based on ideas about family. And I don't think that the left has paid sufficient attention to the remnants of inequality that is associated with kinship rules. And uh, just to say a word briefly about kinship, because we're going to talk about that in a, a bit more later. Um, we, when we hear the word kinship, we are used to associating that with um, anthropological studies, and especially anthropological studies of developing societies or so-called primitive groups and so forth. 
But kinship rules are everywhere, right? There's like no society that does not have a kinship rule. And, um, and so what these kinship rules are responsible for, as I mentioned before, people joining um, into political societies and also for distribution of wealth within them. The Wall Street Journal, in responding to um, the kinship rules associated with birth determining who can come in and out of the United States, says, if Washington still wants to do something about immigration, we propose a five-word constitutional amendment. There shall be open borders. And this was in response to the, what turned out to be the 1986 legislation that was actually relatively liberal compared to other immigration proposals, um, that are, especially those that are circulating now, um, and included an amnesty provision. Um, in any case, th there, there were more harmful proposals. The Wall Street Journal is arguing against them. Um, it continues, the nativist patriots scream for control of the borders. It is nonsense to believe that this unenforceable legislation will provide any such thing. Does anyone want to control the borders at the moral expense of a 2,000-mile Berlin Wall with minefields, dogs, and machine gun towers? Those who mouth this slogan forget what America means. They want those of us already safely ensconced to erect giant signs warning, keep out private property. And they ran this editorial every year for several years. Um, and you know, they had a strong, I don't know exactly when they stopped. I know it stopped for sure after 9-1-1, but there was controversy about that. Um, okay. Um, what I want to talk about now are the nuts and bolts of kinship rules in the United States and the ways that those constitute citizenship here. And um, I, I'm focusing on the United States for a couple of reasons. One is that this is where I live, and so it's um, you know, important to me to engage in the politics of what is happening here. And secondly, the United States does have this reputation for being a very liberal society to the extent that we find references to blood and birth as determining the paradigmatic distribution of citizenship in this country, it's pretty interesting. Um, and so what I want to talk about now are the basis of our marriage rules that lead to um, the kinship rules that we have. Because you know we can talk a lot about whether it's good or bad, but everybody's going to have, or many people have this lurking suspicion that something like marriage, something like the family is a necessary institution. And what I want to do here is talk about the basis of the family, the basis of marriage law, and then look at how that's used in our own citizenship rules. Um, and so the work that I'm exploring here is based on a literature on pregnancy envy. And um, this is initiated in, by Freud in his three essays on sexuality. He later backs away from this, but he raises this question about the importance of trying to figure out where babies come from for infants. And he has an essay in 1909 that's called An Analysis of a Phobia in a Five-Year-Old Boy. Um, and on watching Hans play with his imaginary children, his father says, you know quite well a boy can't have any children. And Hans replies, I know. I was their mommy before. Now I'm their daddy. In another exchange, the father says, boys don't have children, only mummies have children. And Hans says, why shouldn't I? Father, because God arra God's arranged it like that, Hans. But why don't you have one? Oh, yes, you'll have one all right. Just you wait. Like, he's comforting his dad. It's like, too bad you don't have one, but, you know, eventually you'll get there. Um, and you know, this is... This is um, important because it's, a, it's consistent with the establishment of kinship rules. And what all kinship rules is it do is that they place men in an intergeneration, 
in an intergenerational relationship with a child, even if the child isn't um, one that is genetically related to them. And th what these kinds of, and I'm going to go into more information about this, but what this kind of information does is help us try to understand a little bit why these laws exist, right? Why we need formal rules. We can imagine populations in which people have sex and have children without having marriage. And so, but, I mean, we could imagine that theoretically that doesn't really happen. And so, in fact, it doesn't happen anywhere. Um, and there's, all, there's over 90 different kinship rules in place in different societies, but there's no society that doesn't have any kinship rules. Um, and that's almost by definition, because that's how you know what counts as a society. Um, Bruno Bettelheim, when he is a psychoanalyst, and when he noticed in his clinical practice that men were exhibiting what he considered to be symptoms of pregnancy envy, undertook anthropological research and looked at different kinds of um, practices associated with, with this in different places. Um, and he lists dozens, if not hun hundreds, of pregnancy envy rituals across time and place. Um, a sample includes teenage boys in Chicago private schools whose initiation rites are timed to correspond with their girlfriend's menstruation cycles, fathers in Africa feeding their blood to children as a means of supposedly giving them life, African men killing some boys in initiation rites to, quote, convince the women that all have been killed and that men have, been, and that men have brought some of them back to life, end quote. So the apparent resurrection demonstrating men's ability to initiate life. Um, and and that, so this is like associated with the powers of the mother, that they can give birth, but that there's also this possibility that they could kill the infant or the fetus. And so by men going away and killing some boys and saying, oh, well, like, these guys died, but we saved these other ones, right, is meant to um, recreate that according to Bettelheim. Um, he also talks about African anus plugging at the time of marriage. Um, in this practice, husbands conceal their excretions hence simulating a state of constant pregnancy and fertility with the mimicked symbolic cessation of menstruation. Um, and what he's describing is men who um, notice that their wives aren't menstruating and that that's associated with giving birth, and then they are mimicking that by their anus plugging that they are then saying is causal for their wives' pregnancy. Um, Bettelheim ascribes this last practice to, quote, the desire of the men to demonstrate their legal right over their progeny by demonstration of the care they have exercised to arouse fecundity and to arouse the accomplishment of the mother on the occasion of giving birth." End quote. Um, in Europe, there's a, he talks about Italian husbands of pregnant women um, who, ha who have this syndrome of um, pregnant, uh, who the husbands um, take on symptoms of being pregnant. And he says it's the that the researcher calls it the psychosomatic um, equivalent of primitive rituals of initiation into paternity. Um, various symptoms have been described in the husbands of pregnant women with an incidence of 11% to 65%, end quote. Other articles um, document symptoms of bloating, morning sickness, diarrhea, and constipation that are higher for husbands of pregnant wives than for husbands in a control group. Um, Okay, the, Dr. Linda Lindes is a psychologist and she noticed that her son was repeatedly stuffing a small doll under his shirt and saying, I have a baby in my room, womb. And that led her to do a study to see if there were more generalizable symptoms of this among his classmates. And so she went to these private schools in New York 
and found that there was, um, that the preschoolers showed a prevalence of pregnancy envy of 44%, which was as high as that of the penis boyhood envy. So if the girl said, I want to be a boy or I want to have a penis, um, then that was coded and so was the symptoms of the pregnancy <coughs> envy. Um, Karen Horney says, we are familiar with this envy of motherhood as such, but it has hardly received due consideration as a dynamic factor. When one begins, as I did, to analyze men only after a fairly long experience of analyzing women, one receives a most surprising impression of the intensity of this envy of pregnancy, childbirth, and motherhood. Um, why have this envy of birth? Ronk says, who's another psychoanalyst, this conception finds a strong heuristic, strong, finds a strong heuristic support in that it solves the riddle of the ubiquity of the castration complex in a natural way by deriving it from the indisputable universality of the act of birth. And what he's talking about here is um, you know, different models for trying to explain the attachments and importance of sex differences. And so when Freud tries to explain sex differences and you know, masculine authority and you know, based on the penis, the way that Freud does it is say, he says, he actually says this in the three essays on sexuality. Um, the reason that men have power is because they were boys and boys have penises and penises are bigger, they're, they're more visible genitalia. Um, penises um, produce sperm and that has to do with the reproduction of the species. And unconsciously, boys know this, even though they aren't aware of any of the biological facts of reproduction, but unconsciously they know their sperm's really important. Okay, so that's, like he said, it's bigger and boys have sperm. Um, and he needs to come up with this in order to explain the Oedipal complex. The Oedipal complex is the suggestion that boys want sexual access to their mothers and compete with their fathers. Um, the reason that boys um, are fearful and want to kill their fathers is because they are projecting their competition onto their fathers. So the fathers are bigger. If the boys are wanting to kill the fathers, they're not going to be able to do that. Maybe dad's going to be able to kill me, and so the boys um, are anxious about their um, penises in relationship to their fathers. But again, this begs the whole question of different family dynamics and why the penis itself would be so valued to the infant imagination who doesn't understand reproduction. Um, and so what Otto Ronk is pointing out is that insofar as um, you know, kinship rules are diverse, but everybody is born from one group of people and not another and is told, and according to this literature, at some point experiences difference as being told you can't do this thing that you experience as being really important. And so Ronk is suggesting that the penis is valued in a compensatory fashion. Um, the, and by, by pointing this out, I don't know if Ronk thinks this, I, I just want to emphasize, I'm not saying that I think giving birth is inherently amazing and it's more powerful and that you know, what, what women do is better than men. I'm not saying that at all. But I am suggesting that there is this literature that I find interesting and persuasive, um, suggesting that from the point of view of the infant boy's imagination, there is an experience of sex difference that's associated with being told or experiencing um, on an unconscious or subconscious level an inadequacy associated with uh, a difference from the mother who's, been, who's able to give birth. So I'm not saying that this is rational. I'm not saying that there is something inherently great about it. I'm just saying that from the point of view of infant child development, um, there is a sex difference in relationship to birth, and that that's associated with the kinds of kinship rules that develop. 
Again, uh, regardless of the differences in kinship rules, what they all function to do is put a man into a relationship with a child. And again, it's only been in the last you know, few decades that there's been any way of reliably testing genetic paternity. So the only way that there could be a concrete relationship between a man and a child would be through these kinship rules. The kinship rules don't focus necessarily on putting the supposed genetic father in relationship to the child. It could be the brother of the person who's sleeping with the mother is the person who's the father. Um, so there's all sorts of, it could be a, a woman who's the sister of the person who's sleeping with the um, mother, who's the father. Um, there's some anthropological studies of that. So um, there's all sorts of ways of sorting this out, but what's interesting is that they, uh, is that the one thing that kinship rules have in common is that they put men into an intergenerational relationship with the child. Um, one more slide about this. Um, the father says, so th th this is just like about the persistence of this. Um, the father says, do you know why you wish for a baby? It's because you'd like to be a daddy. Um, so this is like how this transition works. Hans says, yes, sure. How does it work? Father, how does what work? Hans, you say daddies don't have babies. So how does it work? My wanting to be a daddy. <laughs> um, the father says, well, you'd like to be a daddy and married to a mommy. You'd like to be as big as me and have a mustache. You'd like mummy to have a baby, right? So that the way that it gets worked out is through the mummy. Um, in protesting against, uh, and, and by the way, marriage is from the Latin word matrix, which means womb. So it's establishing a relationship to the womb, just like daddy is telling Hans. Um, George Gilder, when he was arguing against um, the feminist movement of the 1960s and 1970s, which was in part on focusing on passing an equal rights amendment, um, was, uh, says, despite the feminist protestations, the man remains inferior in procreation. He cannot bear children. Any special access to the child must be granted to him by the woman. She must acknowledge the man's paternity, and only the woman can acquire sexual affirmation by feeding the infant at her breast. Now, this is interesting because we're used to thinking about um, ideologues of patriarchy doing this from the position of saying men are strong, men are smart, men are better. And here's this guy who is pointing out that, from his point of view, the justification for patriarchy is male fragility. Quote, the male sexual repertory is very limited. Men have only one sex organ and one sex act, erection and ejaculation. Everything else is guided by culture and imagination. Other male roles, other styles of masculine identity must be learned or created. In large part, they are a cultural invention necessary to civilized life, but ultimately fragile. Um, so this is just what I was saying before that about the root of marriage, um, and that I wasn't sure if I had that slide here, so I'm sorry for repeating it. Um, marriage is about controlling reproduction. Men establish marriage to accomplish through law what they cannot accomplish through biology. Um, marriage always accomplishes two things, putting men in a certain relation to a child, and it determines membership in a political society. And this is, like, I'm going through all of these steps because I could just start, you know, here and talk about the, um, what we're going to talk about in a second, which is the rules for political society being based on kinship. But I think it's important to have some more nuts and deeper nuts and bolts understanding of one, at least one possible explanation of how this stuff works. Um, marriage law establishes fathers as a sex-specific legal status different from a parent. They're necessary as a compensation for not giving birth, right? This is how Hans gets um, assuaged. Um, it's an imagined form of power for both mothers and fathers. Um, and Gilder says this gives the man the position in wedlock 
to some extent commensurate with the woman's giving birth, with the mother. Um, political societies establish what counts as a family, a status relationship. You cannot have a family before you have a political society because you need rules to know what counts as a family. Kinship rules create the nation, not consent. And in, again, all political societies in the history of the world have as their paradigmatic membership rules birth, either birth in a particular territory or birth to particular parents. Um, the nation is from the Latin nasi, which means birth. Um, and let's look at the United States. Um, so in the United States, citizenship rules were entirely statutory <coughs> until 1868. And at that point, the 14th Amendment gets passed. And this is the first time that it is codified um, in the Constitution to say that all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state where they reside. Okay, so that's like born in the United States, you're a US citizen. And I'm sure you know that there are these um, movements afoot right now to try to change the um, 14th Amendment and qualify it so that only if you're born to people who are, have legal status in the United States <coughs> would you be a citizen. Um, right now, there's also, um, and there has been for years, um, possibilities of deriving citizenship or acquiring citizenship even if you're not born in the United States. And the two main avenues for that are either through having a United States citizen parent um, who is, when you're born abroad, or um, by coming to the United States as a legal resident, as a minor, and then while you're here, both of your parents, well, the changes in different periods, um, now it's one of your parents naturalizes while you're a minor, then you derive US citizenship through your parent naturalizing. So the US citizenship laws that pertain for people who are 11 years and younger um, are that one parent must be a citizen of the United States by birth or naturalization. The child must be under 18 years of age. Um, so this would obviously apply just for the naturalization. The child must be residing in the United States in the legal and physical custody of the citizen parent. The child must be admitted, lawfully admitted as a permanent resident. And when all of these conditions have been met, regardless of the order in which they occurred, the child automatically becomes a citizen. So this is pretty liberal compared to the statutes I'm about to show you. And hasn't really been litigated very much because the kids in question are 11 years old. Um, but for older people, it's really complicated. Um, there are two statutes that are applying right now to people who are um, old, like 12 years and older. Um, if you're born abroad from 1952 to 1986, you're, uh, um, you're US citizens if um, you're born either to a US citizen mother or a US citizen father who is married to the foreign mother. Okay? And this has been litigated on grounds of sex discrimination, right? Because if you're born to a US citizen mother abroad, automatically, that's it, you're a US citizen. Whereas if your um, genetic father is your parent abroad, um, that parent has to be married to the mother in order to affect um, your US citizenship. And the Supreme Court has ruled that that sex discrimination is consistent with the Constitution. Um, children born abroad between 1986 to 2001 are US citizens if they are either born to US citizen mother or a US citizen father who has a, quote, blood relation to the child and is married to the foreign mother. Now, the difference between these two, and we'll, we're going to look at some court cases in just a second, is that the first law only requires a legitimate father, but it doesn't specify legitimacy based on, quote, blood. Whereas the more recent law, um, and this is obviously subsequent to the use of genetic paternity testing, 
specifies the requirement of a genetic, um, of a, quote, blood relation. And this is really interesting. So in 1986, we're using, and now, we're using blood relations, right, to talk about our citizenship rules. I mean, that's something kind of, like, it's a pretty medieval concept to think about this. And this is, like, in our US laws to talk about blood relations. Um, referring to the 1986 to 2001 law, um, where there was clearly not a, quote, blood relationship between the father and the child, the court held, um, we must decide whether eight, that the statute that implements these rules I was just talking about, 8 U.S.C. 1401, requires a blood relationship between a person born outside the United States and his U.S. citizen parent, a question of first impression. We hold that it does not, okay? So they're saying that as long as there's a relationship of legitimacy according to these kinds of kinship rules, uh, then that child counts as a U.S. citizen. The, leg the, the legitimacy rules vary by state. So the federal courts have to defer to each state to decide what counts as the legitimacy um, practice for that state. And I'm just showing you here what the statute looks like. Um, so this is, the, this is the statute that was in place from 1986 to 2001. And it says um, that these shall apply as the date of birth. So all of these statutes, by the way, are in effect depending on your date of birth. So we have three different laws right now that are determining whether people are US citizens, which again suggests the legal character of nationality, um, that it would vary by your, by your date of birth. Um, so for, if you're born between 1986 and 2001, um, you need to have a blood relationship between the person and the father that's established by clear and convincing evidence in order for that parent um, to trigger citizenship, whereas in the earlier cases we saw that it didn't. And what I want to do now is play, to you, play for you um, an oral argument that's before, that was before the Ninth Circuit um, about this guy named Juan Martinez Madera. And he was born in 1953, so he's subject to the 1952 to 1986 provisions. But in his case, as opposed to the decision I was just referring to, um, and there's another one that's called Solus Espinosa, which I mentioned because these will be talked about in the, um, in the um, oral argument. Um, those people were both married to the biological father, or mother, actually. No, sorry. Um, so in um, Juan Martinez Madera, his, um, sorry, in Scales and Solis Espinosa, both of the US citizen parents were married to the biological parent, okay? In Juan Martinez Madera's case, um, his father um, was a Mexican citizen and his mother was a Mexican citizen, but his mother m married um, his stepfather. And so the attorney's claiming that because under California law, um, stepfathers can be recognized as legitimate fathers, therefore Juan Madera's, Mar Martinez Madera acquired US citizenship through his stepfather who was a US citizen. Okay. Is this um, a speak, is there sound for this? Yes, okay, good, okay. It should just be on. Is this? Well, the, this thing usually is lit up. Um, should I, I guess I could. Like, usually it's just streaming. I guess I could turn it on. Do they have Windows Media Player on here? Oh. There we go.
The person that is going to be in dialogue with this guy are the judges on the um, Good morning, Your, Good morning, Your Honor. Paul Jasper appearing on behalf of the petitioner. I'd, I'd like to reserve two minutes for rebuttal if I could. The Ninth Circuit's decisions in Scales v. INS and in Solis Espinoza v. Gonzalez are controlling authority in this matter, and they compel a reversal of the BIA's, BIA's decision that the petitioner in this case was not a citizen. In Solis Espinoza and Scales, the Ninth Circuit held that under 8 U.S.C. section 1401A7, that a child could derive citizenship from a step-parent through legitimation, even though neither of the child's biological parents were citizens. Likewise, in this case, the petition derived citizenship from his stepfather. The BIA distinguished Scales and Solis Espinoza on the ground that in each of those cases, at the time of the petitioner's birth, the citizen stepparent and the non-citizen biological parent were married. In this case... That's not, the, that's not true in this case. Correct. In this case, Your Honor, that marriage didn't happen until the petitioner was seven years of age. Um, there, the... There is no marriage at birth requirement. Uh, first, beginning with the, sec with the, uh, the relevant sections, section 1401A7 and sections, section 1409, which were the two sections at issue in those cases, neither of them have any reference to marriage whatsoever. In fact, in section 1409, it specifically indicates that its provisions are applicable only to a child born out of wedlock, which clearly indicates there's no marriage requirement. Moreover, neither Solis Espinoza nor Scales pinned their decisions on a, on a marriage at birth. Rather, they focused on legitimation. The only source of a marriage at birth requirement is the peculiar legitimation statute issue in Scales. In Scales, the petitioner was domiciled in Washington, so the, the relevant state legitimation statute was the Washington statute, which had a requirement for legitimation that the uh, that there be a marriage at birth. In Solis of Spinoza, by contrast, the petitioner was domiciled in California, which is the same in this case. And under the California statute, there is no marriage at birth requirement. Rather, there are two main requirements, which are that the purported father publicly acknowledge the child as his own and and that the purported father received the child into his home as his own child. There is no requirement at, at, of marriage at birth and because the petitioner in this case is subject to the California legitimation statute and not the Washington legitimation statute, there is no marriage at birth requirement. Because, the, the, moreover, in this case, there is no factual dispute whatsoever, neither, neither in terms of the holdings below nor the, the contentions of the respondent, that, that absent this issue with respect to the, the marriage at birth requirement, that the petitioner otherwise satisfies the requirements of the legitimation statute. From, age, from the age of six months, the petitioner has been a member of the family. Um, since that time, the parents have, been, have, uh, have gotten married. He now, at this point, has six different half-brothers uh, and sisters. All of those uh, children are citizens. The stepmother in 1981 was conferred citizenship. And the practical import at this point of denying this man citizenship is that he will be the only member of a nine-person family that cannot stay here in the, in the United States. Um, the, 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 I, want, I want to touch on a, a basis which did not underlie the underlying uh, decision, um, but is, uh, is highlighted in respondent's brief, which is the uh, erroneous contention that under California law, a stepfather cannot legitimate a child. 
There is no California case under California Civil Code Section 230, which was applicable from 1872 to 1975, which discusses the issue of whether or not a stepfather can legitimate a child. The respondent cites three separate cases, the Blythe v. Ayers case, the Estate of Lund case, and the Colpitt v. Cheatham case. None of those three cases consider whether or not a stepfather can legitimate. Rather, each one of those cases considers whether or not the biological illegitimate child can inherit from their deceased father's estate. There is a brief discussion in dicta in those cases which talks about legitimation versus adoption. It's important to understand the context. If you look at California Civil Code Section 230, it uses the word adopts, that the purported father who meets the requirements of the legitimation statute thereby adopts the child. And the focus in that case was simply clarifying that in addition to the two requirements of legitimation, there was no requirement of a formal adoption. Moreover, there is significant discussion of this issue with respect to the successor statute to Section 230, which is codified at the California Family Code Section 7611D. Under the successor statute, the California courts have had the opportunity on multiple occasions to consider this very issue, and on all occasions in no instance have determined that the status as a stepfather as opposed to a biological father precludes legitimation. In Ray Nicholas H., in fact, the purported father admitted that he was not the biological father and nevertheless was allowed to legitimate. In the other two cases cited, in Ray Kiana and Steve W. Okay, so thank you for bearing with me for listening to that argument. One of the cases that is consistent with what the attorney is talking about is Miller v. Miller that says the conclusive presumption of paternity applies to Michael as a matter of law. Consequently, so this is a case actually, Miller v. Miller, they're both brothers. And Michael's wife had sex with Gary, and Gary then married Michael's wife and wants to be able to assert his legal paternity. And the court is saying no. The conclusive presumption of paternity applies to Michael as a matter of law, the husband. Consequently, whether or not Gary is in fact Samantha's biological father is immaterial. Michael has established an emotional and financial father-daughter relationship with Samantha, thus Gary's private interest in establishing a parent-child relationship based on alleged biological father status is overridden by state interests in family stability and the best interests of the child. And they held that Gary's DNA proving genetic paternity did not overcome Michael's status as the presumptive father. And we're almost done. In the case of Martinez Madera that we just heard, he lost. And I kind of was trying to hold on a little bit longer, but we're running out of time, because I wanted to get to the government's argument, because the government makes the argument that he's not a U.S. citizen, and the judges seem to destroy the government attorney. So you think, if you're just listening to the oral argument, that Martinez Madera wins, but he doesn't. And when the decision comes down, they actually cited the wrong statute. So I pointed out that there was one statute that was in place from 1980 
sorry, 1953 to 1952 to 1986, and then another from 1987 to 2000. And the decision quoted the latter one, even though the guy was born um, in the time frame of the earlier one. And you can see here that the, um, they make this argument, the attorney makes this argument in the appeal. The court erred in applying the current version of 8 U.S.C. 1409A to appellant's petition, which requires a blood relationship with the, between the petitioner and citizen parent. The court should have applied the version of 8 U.S.C. 1409A in effect at the appellant's time of birth. And um, in the mark, there's another case that's virtually identical um, to the one that we just heard. And the decision says it is a com also ruled against the person deriving U.S. citizenship, pointing out it is a commonplace that the traditional ways of transmitting and acquiring citizenship at birth are use solely and use sanguinis. In this country, the former is provided for by the co Constitution, and the latter is provided for by the enactments of Congress. Um, it would be a bit surprising to discover that over the decades of con Congress had selected a method that relied on neither concept, but rather was content to have United States citizenship acquired at birth by a person born out of wedlock who was not born on United States soil and who at the time did not have a natural parent who was a United States citizen. As it is, there is no cause for concern. Um, one more slide, which is that in a very recent case, just a few weeks ago, that was argued also before the Ninth Circuit, um, the judge pointed out that they made a mistake in the decision that I just read from. And she says during the oral argument, our court relied on Miller dicta in Margot Pilato, but it also in turn relied on an earlier decision of our court that somehow contains an error. I hate to blame law clerks for this sort of thing, but Martinez Madera cites to the new version of the statute for the proposition that the old version contains the blood relationship. And it's just a mistake in the opinion that got picked up later because, as you, addressing the government attorney, and I both know, the new version expressly added it where it was not in the old version, end quote. And the reason I want to end with this is that it suggests that, our, you know, that there's these myths about these ideas about birth and birthright and the connection between that and nationality that are so strongly held that even in the face of an actual statute that says the opposite and you know, other rulings that say the opposite, um, the court would issue a, a, an opinion that is actually like a published opinion um, that would bind people and be used as precedent for these other kinds of cases. And the people who argued this case, which is, is another factually similar um, case, are really curious about what, you know, how this is going to be resolved legally. Um, but for purposes of our conversation, what's important about it is, again, this idea that you know, even in these modern states, we're committed to these ideas of birthright connected to citizenship and that groups that depend on these intergenerational ties are prone to violence and also to um, consist, they're also consistent with um, economic inequality that is difficult to alleviate when people perceive that they're not members of these intergenerational groups um, along with the people to whom they were supposed to provide assistance. So I think I'll just end there. <laughs> Going to um, take questions. Sure. Can I ask you a question? Yes. <laughs> that was a clever ruse. <laughs> so I've always, always wanted to know why, um, well, one thing you did, I mean, you go back to Ford to tell us about why you end up with um, sex differences that lead to pathologies and so forth. So like one of the foundational principles I've always wanted to understand, I'll just sit over there. Uh, I've always wanted to understand is why do people, or what's your theory for why people feel the need to uh, be concerned with death? Like, why should we care about what happens after death? Is, is, do you think the state is involved in producing that myth as well, or what? Where right. No, no, no. So, no, the, I mean, the, what he's talking about with the, these fears of mortality, I think, is just 
this like fear of dying, like people, like who wants to die? <laughs> but isn't fear of dying constructed by religion oh, as well? I mean, I where does fear of death come from? That's a great question. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't, I, <laughs> yeah. I mean, do you think it's a constant? I, I mean, do you think it's a constant? Is it a natural thing? Or do you think it's a Freudian psychopathology or? Do I think it's I don't I don't think it's I don't think it's pathological to be afraid of anything in particular, but I do mm -hmm. think it's pathological to develop institutions that compensate for that in ways that cause harm. Okay. So the fear of death isn't something in itself that is pathological, but like these overcompensatory responses to it that establish these mythical institutions to try to um, suggest that we can be immortal are are, the, are pathological okay. would be the response. In the book. Yeah, I think this is this is jumping off and you might have answered but this is very interesting by the way. Um, so in Freudian terms, why aren't you treating the symptoms rather than the root of the neurosis? And if it's a deep root for the neurosis, isn't it likely that the, the violent tendencies are gonna find some other outlet if we just treat the, the symptoms? Does that make sense? Right. So um, I'm actually saying that the if, if, this, if the underlying impulse is um, this fear of death, that that's and, the, pregnancy. and, and pregnancy envy, um, that those things are like let's concede that those are you know features of our psychological landscape that are unalterable. Um, the question is, can't you know we're not infants, and so can't we come up with? ways of handling our social relations that are more consistent with like rational adult decision making than the you know fantasies of infants. Right, but if, if and so that, that would mean changing our laws. Right. So I, I'm sorry if I can follow up. But so in, again in Freudian terms, if I had you know some uh, psychosomatic paralysis, um, you would, Freud wouldn't recommend physical therapy on the paralyzed limb, right? That would the, you know the claim is that even if you forced it to work somehow, you'd be causing some damage through some other path, right? So it's not so much that we can get rid of pregnancy envy or fear of death necessarily, but so get, coming into some sort of healthy relationship right. with it would seem to be essential. And merely treating the the potentially destructive um, symptoms wouldn't seem to it, that we in in that you know, these are big, they're interesting, but they're big, big changes you're calling for with potential, potentially um, difficult to envision um, consequences that could be perverse in other sorts of ways. Well, okay, so to take up your example, so if you have a, a, a there's a you know, patient who has some kind of paralysis of a, a limb or something, like, you know, the idea in mind would be that ultimately you clear up whatever the underlying problem is and that the arm moves, right? right? And so you have to have in mind that the arm's going to move. And so it, that's part of what the treatment envisions is that there's some kind of, you know, um, there's some kind of uh, therapy that at the end of this will produce a healthy outcome. And so I'm suggest so I guess the way I would think about the analogy is that talking about the underlying causes and having some kind of, you know, rational understanding in the case of an individual patient, it might be something that was happening with, with a parent or something like that, um, would therefore, in the Freudian model, lead to self-consciousness and a more rational response. And so I'm suggesting, okay, well, if we can all as a culture, as a society, as groups of people, think about what the basis is of these irrational institutions, like the arm is irrationally not moving, then we can you know, envision possibilities of what it would look like for the arm to move. 
And, you know, but that would come out of these uh, understanding of what the underlying cause is. So the underlying cause would be thinking about pregnancy envy, thinking about fears of death. So I don't know if it, yeah. Carol, think. quote, you know, all my libido goes out today to Austria's Hungary. But what is it, two years later he writes Thoughts on Death and Die. And one of his observations there is that wars when men send their sons off to fight and die. And of course that's been said a lot by other people as well. Both the mayor famously said that in 73. Can you play with that at all? Yeah, I mean, well, Freud, I mean, Freud, you're right. Like, Freud had really complicated um, relationship to talks to societies about war. And he, he, as I was saying, he wasn't, you know, on the side, he, he was pessimistic about it. I mean, it wasn't like he was unmoved by it. Um, he thought, you know, on the one hand, he had these investments in some wars. He had horrible things to say about Woodrow Wilson. I don't know, like, well, he, he had this, like, this, like, really, he, 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 excuse me? Right. I mean, one of the little-known, longer works by Freud is a biography of Woodrow Wilson, co-authored with this guy from um, Princeton, um, and it is just—it it was published posthumously, um, and people in the Freud, um, you know, I guess like Freud studies, I don't think talk about it very much because it's so embarrassing. Like it's such a weird, um, but work, and part of it is atta is attacking um, Wilson's. Um, you know, cosmopolitanism and his establishment of the League of Nations, as well as entering World War I. Um, and so, you know, yeah, like, so Freud had these complicated ideas about war. He had these exchange of letters with Albert Einstein, where Einstein, right, and Einstein's like, war bad, get rid of it, stop it, peace good. And Freud's like, I don't know if we can really do that, you know. Um, so I'm, so by using Freud, I'm not suggesting, as, and I was trying to highlight this, that I, am condoning his response to it, but only pointing out that he's maybe onto a symptom that has to do with, and I think this is really important, understanding that the institutions that we establish because we're trying to protect ourselves um, from suffering and from death are the ones that are harming us. And throughout his work, that's one of the things that's so interesting about what he does is it's like, okay, you think the family is a place for intimacy and affection and love? Well, I'm gonna show you how it's a place of like violence and incest and abuse. And you know, except when it's not, <laughs> um, and and so I, you know, I think that's you know where I find his insights useful. What about this idea of fathers sending their sons off? Yeah, that, I mean, your model, oh, well, I, I, you know, that's it's not it's consistent with this, right? Because if you're sending your sons off to war, that's part of enhancing the survival of the nation. I mean, it's like done. You, know, you can always, I mean, there's all sorts of models of you know parents who. Um, you know, like think that their children are making sacrifices that are worthy of honor and respect, and that's what Hitler's talking about, you know. And then the opposite would impact with Holwitz after World War One. You know, he basically speaks to the mother and says, you know, war is an atrocity in just this kind of way. Although mothers also can partake, I mean, you know, mothers also can partake in the vengeance cycles and, and so forth as well and celebrate their, you know, fallen children. Um, but uh, and I but I do think it's important to point out that that there are people who are you know invested in this psychology and institutions of war and there's people who are fighting it and one of the things that I think is important is to see what we could do to change our institutions so that they conform more with the intuitions of people who favor pacifism. A lot of the underlying drivers of this are pretty constant across most nations. 
yet war is a pretty rare event. Uh, and even inequality varies a lot across these countries. So where I'm not so convinced yet is the relationship between this uh, community phenomenon you're describing and war and inequality, which is what sort of gives you the, you know, the core of political motivation to really be deeply interested in this. Right. And so I see a constant as your main explanatory variable for something that's actually quite rare Right. Well, so I w so this is this, I'm really glad you asked that question. I mean, political scientists in general tend to be interested in you know when wars break out and what are the variables that lead you know some um, context to erupt in civil wars and not others. And my question, you know, I think that that's kind of the wrong question. I, w I would turn it around and say that rather than trying to understand something that actually political scientists have been miserable at understanding. Um, you know, the, like to pinpoint the exact times and locations and institutional mechanisms and so forth for conflict over time is at, like there's been no study that's done that, and so I would suggest that it, it, like, you know the, even ones that have high correlations and so forth like don't explain most of the cases. So I would suggest that rather than focusing on when um, and where wars erupt, that we should think about why it is that some groups are associated with this mass systemic violence. And not others, and so like it's like just just say it's random, right? Like I would just say that like there's certain kinds of conjunctures that at some point might lead to uh, you know violence, and the others who don't. But the one that the con that there is this constant, and the constant are these intergenerational or religious attachments. So again, like for mass systemic violence, like not for episodic soccer hooliganism or something like that. Um, but so the best way to get rid is like w there's a whole bunch of different associations to which people belong or membership groups like universities or you know soccer clubs and so forth. And there's only corporations, um, universities, that, but there's only a small handful that are associated with this kind of violence and systemic inequality in terms of the you know concentration of wealth, for instance. And so I guess I would say, well, let's like, we know that's the problem, and so let's just fix that. Who cares what the other you know, underlying triggers are in, that are episodically associated with the outbreaks. That, that, you know, I understand that's not the mainstream view. <laughs> uh, uh, when I took philosophy of science and epistemology, I was told that you should never try to explain a social fact by a, by a, by a psychological fact, that you are skipping levels altogether. Now, I think the last part of your your uh, talk makes a lot of sense, but I can't see how in the world you connect uh, uh, rank and Freud, who knew nothing about society. Uh, I can't see how that bears upon your ultimate uh, uh, discussion of how we interpret biological facts, or how we <coughs> Biological uh, data in our law. Why bother with that? With that first part of your talk. Okay, um, because there is because I because this isn't just my belief. That it is an empirical fact that kinship laws are universal. Like so, I actually have a methods chapter where I celebrate Karl Popper, <laughs> and the reason that I do that is because um, you know he he actually says that the most 
important part of a research project is coming up with the concepts that you're using, and then you test them and you see if they're falsified. And he was very opposed to probability studies because from his point of view, um, you know, Newton, you drop the apple every single time it falls. Every single time. Like if it doesn't fall once, you falsified his theory of gravity, right? And so I'm looking at this set of facts that, you know, and, uh, the, the universality of kinship rules and wondering, okay, well, what would be one possible way of conceptualizing an explanation for this? And so then I come up with this concept. And you know, from the Popper's point of view, it doesn't matter where you come up with it, as long as you test it, and then it's not falsified. So I, I, you know, if, if the, the proof would be um, whether or not the concept is falsified, not whether, where it comes from, if it comes from psychology, if it comes from anthropology, if it comes from you know, whatever, just you know, a dream, it, it doesn't matter from Popper's point of view, you have the concept, you test it, and then you see what happens.